All right. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody that's watching online or listening on our podcast. My name is David Bendet, and I'm the senior pastor here at Rock City Church in the beautiful Corpus Christi, Texas. The last few weeks, we have been teaching on being measured. The message title has been Measured with Mercy. And it's the understanding that measurement and judgment go hand in hand, and that God calls us to be spiritual and to judge with spiritual eyesight. That God calls us to love each other the way that he loved, and to lay our lives down, and to see each other the way that he sees us. The first part of this series was focused on measuring ourselves, and first dealing with our own heart, and coming before the Lord, and saying, God, check me. Check me. Search me. Know me. If there's anything inside of me that's anxious or not right, I want you to deal with it first. The responsibility always first starts with us going to the Lord. And then the second thing is not being afraid to come into relationship with other people and then having an accurate understanding of how we measure each other. Because God designed this to be a family. I constantly am measuring my children. Now, I, I love them, and I'm not constantly judging them, but when they do things that aren't right or healthy or they make poor decisions or they ask me questions about certain things, I'm constantly bringing correction, advice, or instruction into their life. And so today, I want to conclude this series with the third part of this message, which is titled, Cut to the Heart. I started out by giving you the kind of constructions, the construct, const general contractor's mantra, which is measure twice, cut once. And so we've measured twice, and now we're going to talk about the cutting. And uh, it's not such a popular message, but it's so important in the context of building a family. So... Being measured and measuring each other is a, is a difficult topic, and I thought long and hard about how I would really talk about it to conclude this series. And I want to talk about it in this context. How do you receive being measured, and what do you do when someone measures you? That's the first thing. The second thing is, how do you measure somebody accurately? And in a culture of love, where family is priority, you can do it in a way that brings healing, comfort, and restoration to people's lives. The challenge is, is in the Western Americanized culture, and for most of us, we don't like to really receive correction. But it's important that we understand that unless we're corrected, we're not going to be able to walk properly in the way that God's called us to walk. And I've used a lot of examples, especially last week, from uh, breaking the law to working out at the gym. There are so many things that we can do in our lives that aren't biblical or aren't healthy. Our posture, our position, and the way that we do things can actually br bring hurts and pains and dysfunction to our lives. And if we really love someone and we really care about them, we'll take the time and the investment to correct them. That's what real fathers do. And we have to welcome correction into our life, especially when it's done in love and grace and mercy. And this church, if it's really going to become what God's called it to become, if judgment is really going to start with the house of God, then we have to learn how to properly receive correction and give correction. And this whole message really is being birthed out of the heart of a father, meaning that we have so many sons and daughters here. We have so many young adults here. We have so many people and families that have come from hurting and broken churches. We have so many people that have been abused 
or used up in other churches that have walked in here broken or discouraged. We live in a society where thousands and thousands and thousands of people have washed their hands clean of going to church because they haven't liked what they've seen or the dysfunction that they've seen. And I've talked about why God wants judgment to start here. And judgment doesn't mean a bad thing. It means that God refines us, he aligns us, he corrects us, and he makes every crooked path straight. One of our mottos at Rock City Church has been things don't go wrong, they start wrong. And what I mean by that is that it's so important for us to constantly be focused on how are we starting things? Because years down the line, I don't want things to go crooked or sideways. I want them to always start the way that God wants things to start. And so we're constantly measuring and we're constantly looking at how we do things. And we have to constantly be thinking about how well do we love each other? How well do we do life together? How well do we get in the trenches with each other? How well do we measure each other? How well do we inspect each other's lives? And how well do we correct each other? That's important to me. And it's important that each of you accurately reflect God's heart and the vision that God's given me if this is going to go where God's called it to go. God's got great purposes for this city. He's got a great plan for Rock City Church. I know he does. But if we don't learn to do life and relationships well, if we don't learn to measure and, and receive correction and give correction well, people will get hurt, they'll leave offended, and they won't come back or they'll walk away from God or they'll live a whole life spun out no matter where they go. And so what I want more than anything is for us to accurately love well, and I want us to accurately show tough love and accurately measure and correct the way that God's called us to correct. Are you guys okay with that? Yeah. All right. So again, I know this may not be the most popular Sunday morning message, but it's important that we all understand how to do this and what the Bible says about it. So I'm going to move quickly for the sake of time, and I'm going to give you some powerful scriptures and some insight and some understanding, and then I want to pray for you. And as I talk, I want you to check your own heart about what these scriptures say, how you receive correction, and how you give correction, okay? The first scripture that I want to point out to you is Acts chapter 2, verse 37. In Acts chapter 2, you should know the story. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the 120 in the upper room, and then the, the 120 are filled with the Spirit. They go out of the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem. They're praying in tongues. They're blasted by the Holy Spirit. They're, they're emotional. They're really, really moved by what the Holy Spirit's done in their life. And in turn, it, it gathers a large group of people wanting to hear what Peter has to say, about 3,000 people. And Peter stands up and preaches a sermon that is powerful. It's powerful, and this is a guy that had denied Jesus three times. This is a guy that had been fully restored by Christ. This is a guy that wasn't educated, and yet he stands up and he quotes many scriptures from the Old Testament, and he reprimands the, the Jews that are in, in Jerusalem and all the people listening to his, his message. And when he reprimands them, he says this. He points his finger square at them and says, you are the ones that are guilty for crucifying the Messiah. After he preaches the message, he says, you guys are the ones that are responsible for what happened. And the response of the people was so powerful. When they heard it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
This is the very foundational understanding of where salvation begins. Salvation begins when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize we were guilty for crucifying Christ. All of our failures, all of our mistakes, all of the hardships that we've been through, all of those things put Christ on the cross so that we could receive forgiveness. And it starts first with being cut to the heart. And so when we're measuring someone, the understanding is by the Spirit, you want them to self-realize what they've done and take responsibility for their own actions. And so every time that I talk with someone, I ask a lot of questions, a lot of questions. How did you get here? How long have you been in this situation? How did it start? Let's go back 10 years ago. Let's talk about the beginning of this relationship. Let's talk about your upbringing. I ask a lot of questions to help people self-realize for themselves with the hope and the intent that they would be cut to the heart. When someone is cut to the heart, the word cut means to be vexed in your mind. It literally is an assault on your mind. What it does is it causes you to move into an emotion of sorrow when you're cut to the heart. That's why in Psalm 51, David said the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so when God deals with us on issues personally, which we all should be dealt with personally if we're born again, we're cut to the heart with the Lord. But sometimes we don't have a good, accurate understanding of what the Bible says. We don't have a good understanding of what God's standard is. We live in a society where thousands and thousands and thousands of people don't read their Bible or have no understanding what God's biblical standard is. I'm, they're coming up the ranks everywhere around us, right here at Texas A&M, in your own city. There are young adults and people being raised with no knowledge of God's biblical standard or what real families should look like and what God expects of people. They don't read their Bible, and most of what they've seen from Christian TV or preachers has been inaccurate. And so what we have to do is we have to be willing to preach the gospel to them, which is good news, and we have to be willing to highlight or measure areas of, of um, misguided or deception in their understanding, and then refine them and help them to self-realize so that they're cut to the heart. And when somebody's cut to the heart, the response is always, what, do I, what must I do? We come to the place that says, I'll do whatever it takes to make it right. And in this case, Peter would say, repent of your sins, be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and remove yourself from the, this perverse generation, meaning separate yourself from the world. So Peter would measure the Israelites in a powerful way. He would give them answers, but it always would start with first being cut to the heart. This understanding of being pierced or to pain your mind sharply or to agitate your mind is an incredible understanding. Here's the point. The point is, is that when God brings his revelation and his truth to your life, at first, it can be an assault on your mind, but he does it on purpose because what he wants to do is crucify the intellect. He wants to break down your own understanding of the way you thought it was supposed to be so he can bring new life and understanding to the way he wants it to be. And that can be tough. It can be tough on a Sunday morning. It can be tough with the types of messages that I preach, with the way we worship, with this atmosphere. It can be tough when something's in your life that's not healthy and somebody comes to correct you or speak life to you. At first, it can bring mental anguish to your mind. 
but God has a healing process. And God first wants you to understand that he breaks you down so that he can build you up. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. This is an incredible passage of scripture. Paul had written a very, very stern letter to the Corinthian church. The apostle Paul on many occasions would rebuke the churches for errors in their ways. He said to the Galatian church, you're bewitched. He said to the Corinthian church, you're acting childish and you're carnal and you're deceived. And so he would write a very, very stern letter to the Corinthian church that actually cut to the heart of this church and made them sorry. It made them, it made them sorrowful. But I want you to understand sorrow. You've got to have a good understanding of sorrow. Sorrow is a difficult thing. Nobody really wants to feel sorrow. But sorrow in the right light has a purpose. My, my, my son, disciplining my son or my daughter is a very difficult thing for me. But I understand that I love them enough that I have to discipline them. And as much as it hurts me to have to put my child in a timeout or even spank them, what I found is that if, I, if they don't have a repentant, sorrowful heart, they're never going to learn the proper lessons that they're supposed to learn. And so on many occasions, I have had to spank my son for being defiant repeatedly. And as soon as I do and he cries, you know what he says almost the first thing he says? I'm sorry. And you know the first thing I say? I forgive you. Because we teach our children a lot of forgiveness, even in the midst of stern discipline. And I don't even feel like my discipline's stern. But but I, I have to teach my children the understanding of sorrow. And you need to have a healthy understanding of sorrow. So let me show it to you. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11. Now I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So I look at it like this. Paul basically says, what I wrote to you had a purpose, and it produced this bag of emotions. It was a whole bag of emotions. If you look at all the words that are used to describe what was produced when they were made sorry, it's like super emotional. It's intense. It's very, very intense. But it was done because he loved the Corinthian church, and it was done for a lot of reasons, and I'm going to point them out to you. First, being made sorry produced a purpose. And here's what Paul said, that you would suffer loss in nothing. Here's the point, is that if you don't receive correction and aren't made sorry for it in a proper way, then you'll continue in the spiral, down, downward spiral of dysfunction. History repeats itself most of the time. So what I want to do is stop the repetitive cycle of dysfunctional history. And so if you don't receive the sorrow for the dysfunctional decisions that you've made, 
If you don't have a repentant heart for it, guess what happens? You continue to suffer loss. So if I love you enough, I will correct you so that you don't continue in the dysfunction that you are continuing in. Get it? Because I care about you. I mean, this is powerful. He says, I corrected you so that you wouldn't suffer any additional loss. It's powerful, powerful word. And so if you want to stay on the dysfunctional train, then you continue to do what you're doing and you don't receive correction from God or from anybody else. But if you want to get off the train, if you want to start having healthy relationships, if you want to stop being married uh, multiple times, if you want to stop shacking up with every boy or girl that you get in a relationship with, if you want to stop having affairs, if you want to stop robbing and stealing and lying and cheating, if you want to stop doing drugs, if you want to stop fill in the blank with your issue, then you've got to receive the correction and have godly sorrow. And I'm going to show you that there's a difference between godly sorrow and the sorrow that the world produces. A huge difference. And if we do this right, we're going to have a church full of people being transformed because they're confessing their sins in the light before the Lord. They're living in the light and they're in process of getting healing because there's a repentant heart. It's called godly sorrow. So let's look at it some more. Godly sorrow brings repentance and salvation. So the first thing that happens when it's godly sorrow is that I say, I've got to turn from the way I've been living and change the way I think. Let me say it differently. I've got to change the way I think so I can change the way that I live. Because repentance first means to change the way that you think, which in turn changes the way that you live. So our job as good leaders and mothers and fathers in a healthy church is to pull the string on the light bulb and shine the light in your life. So that what happens is, is you would think differently and then in turn, you would live and your actions would be different. Does that make sense? So repentance means that, aha, I've got it. I see it. This isn't God's personal best. Now we do it with mercy, we do it with love, and we're extremely patient. You know why? Because I've received gobs and gobs and gobs. Every mistake that most of you have made, I've probably made. Now, I've never had an affair, but I'm telling you, I've made a lot of mistakes even as a Christian. And I've already talked a lot about the mercy component, but today is the cutting component. component. Because every one of us needs to be cut. The problem is, is in dysfunctional churches, You've been cut either the wrong way or you're afraid of being cut because you're afraid of getting hurt. And if we don't learn how to cut right, right, Billy? One small measurement that's off can cause a whole problem in a house or a window or whatever it is you're building. So you've got to learn to cut on the lines and cut with right measurements and cut accurately. And so godly sorrow produces repentance, which then leads to salvation. Understand that salvation means to be rescued first. It means to be defended. It means to be delivered. And it means to be made whole. So the process is, is I'm going to rescue you out of the dysfunction. Then I'm going to cover you and protect you in it. Yeah, you bombed it really, really bad. I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff people confess to me. I've had people confess murder. I've had people confess horrible affairs, incest. You wouldn't believe the stuff that I've had people tell me. But thank God that they get it out into the light so they can start their process of healing. 
It produces repentance, which then brings salvation to their lives. And salvation means to make them whole. And it says not to be regret. Here's another thing about godly sorrow. It takes away regret. And some of you are living in horrible regret about your past. God never called you to live in regret. I could, I could, I could sit and fester on regret day and night. If I think long enough about my failures and what could'ves and should'ves and ifs and buts and candy and nuts, it'd be Christmas every day. You understand? You can't live in your past of regret. Godly sorrow will change the way you think, then it will lead you to being made whole, and it will wash away your past so that you don't live in regret. Woo! Man, this is a word for some of you today. Because you are so stuck in regret from your past. Understand the power of godly sorrow. Let's keep reading. Godly sorrow removes regret, but sorrow of the world produces death. You know why? Here's why sorrow of the world produces death. The world's sorrow is constantly focused on your problem and your pain. And we live a life full of being self-centered on how bad I am and what I did wrong and my pain, and we live in pain. So to solve that problem, what do we do? Pills, drugs, alcohol, don't talk about it, hide out, numb it out, and don't keep it in the light. We keep it private. And guess what it does? You're going to die. The world system of sorrow will kill you. But if we can get an understanding of godly sorrow here, oh man, I don't know how many, how many pastors are preaching this message, but I'm telling you right now, this is the understanding of what healthy justice and judgment in God's house should look like. It's not Pentecostal legalism. This is supernatural fire and love that refines us and makes us to be who we're supposed to be. Yeah! Woo! It gets me so fired up. Man, it gets me so fired up. And so the world system will have you focused on your problems. The devil wants you always looking at what's wrong with you. And then if he puts you in a position where you're afraid that the person that's going to measure you is going to be looking at what's wrong with you. That's not proper measurement. Look at Gideon. Gideon's hiding out in, in a wine press threshing wheat. There's a major problem with that. They're hiding out in the rocks because Israel's been living in idolatry. So the angel of the Lord shows up in Judges 6, and he says, the Lord's with you, mighty man of valor. And then Gideon gives all the reasons why God's, if God's really with me, where's he been? He's been believing lies and deception about God. And you know what the angel says? Arise in this might of yours, and you're going to go rescue the nation. Wait, what? In the might of yours, Gideon can't see what the angel sees. And that's why we have to be a prophetic church with prophetic eyesight. Yeah. Not judging and tearing down erroneously, but loving and building up victoriously. Amen. Do you understand? We have to love the way he loves and see the way he sees. So the world's sorrow will produce death. The devil wants you focused on your problems all the time. Every day, he tries to remind me of what's not right. 
Do you know that? Every day. From my money, to my kids, to my home, to my garage, to you nail it. All this stuff that I can be thinking about that needs to be done. Some of you are spun out night and day with all the things that are not fixed and not done right. But Jesus comes along and shows you the solution and the answers and gives you a hope and he gives you a future. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11. He, I know what I'm thinking about you. It's the aim of my thoughts for the future of your life. Oh, so godly sorrow. Check this out. The results of sorrowing in a godly manner are this. Verse 11. I'll move through them quickly. Here's, here's what they are. Seven of them. Produces diligence, clearing of ourselves, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, and vindication. Now, every one of those words is a bag of emotions. I'm just telling you. All those words of what godly sorrow produces all causes a lot of emotions to rise up, but it has a purpose and intent. First, it produces diligence, meaning it causes you suddenly to live your life with much more careful focus and persistent worker effort on what really matters the most. The second thing is it clears yourselves. The word for clearing yourself is the word apologia, which means it makes, it makes you apologetic. So suddenly now my focus and attention comes on what matters and I repent. I have an ap apologetic heart that says, you know what? I take ownership of what I did. Just take ownership. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to preserve yourself or protect yourself. The next thing is that it produces indignation. The word indignation means that it, it brings, it's irritating, it's vexing, and it, it, it produces a righteous anger inside of you that says, I have been treated unfairly, now I want to make everything right. Or I believed a lie, now I want to believe the truth. So we just take ownership and we say, hey, I was corrected in this area, and it's okay, and I'm mad at the fact that I believed a lie. I got mad that I had believed so many lies for so long. I was taught a lot of dysfunction about my faith. A lot of things in the early days that I had to repent for. It produces fear, vehement desire, zeal, and vindication, which means all of it leads to a point of me getting passionately and fervently focused on clearing my name by doing the right thing. It's doing the right thing, no matter what the consequences are. And that produces vindication. It's throwing your hands up and surrendering and say, I missed it, I was wrong, and now I want to be vindicated. And we get vindicated when we first allow godly sorrow, then repentance, then forgiveness, then a passion of zeal to do it the way that God wants us to, and in turn, we can get vindicated. Some of you aren't walking in any vindication. Vindication simply means that an atonement has been completely made and you've been clear to the blame. And you're living the blame game still. Break the blame game out of your life. You blew it up, you bombed it, receive forgiveness and mercy and the blood of Jesus and let's move forward, amen? amen. Come on guys, I'm break some shame out of your lives today. So you have to have a clear understanding of the cutting process. In that, cutting 
and creating are synonymous. I've quoted Psalm 51.10 so many times. David bombs it with Bathsheba, sends Uriah, uh, her husband, into the front lines of the battle over in Ammon, Jordan, on the other side of the Jordan River, and gets him killed, and then takes Bathsheba as his wife. She's pregnant. I mean, he, bought, he should have died. The law commanded him to be killed for what he did. So Nathan the prophet shows up and basically reprimands him, tells him a story about the poor guy that raised the little lamb and how the rich guy took the poor guy's lamb. David's cut to the heart and says, that guy should be put to death. And Nathan the prophet says, Tad, you're the guy. And you know what David does? <laughs> I'm guilty. And then he repents and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that moved God's heart to cleanse him, but there were still consequences. We'll talk about that briefly. So the word create, this is what David wrote after that in Psalm 51. The word create, I've shared this with you many times. The first meaning of the word create means to be cut. Because here's how it works. If any of you are carpenters or you've ever built something, you have to first cut down something before you fashion it. It's like a tree. If you're going to make a table out or a chair, everything was cut down. Everything here was cut down from something to make something. If you cook, you always cut or reduce down the spices or break them down so that the flavors can come out. So what David was basically saying in essence is you need to be cut down so that you can be created to be something incredible. And that's a difficult saying. But if you can see the process of being reduced, that's the process of the gospel. If anybody wants to be Jesus' disciple, let them deny themselves. Let them lose their life. It, it, it's a seed falling to the ground that's the old you dies so that the new you can be resurrected. It's the process of daily renewal. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that every day we should be being made new. Anybody that's in Christ Jesus is a new creation. So you weren't just born again and made new 10 years ago, but you should be in a process of daily renewal every single day. I should be better today than I was yesterday. I should be better tomorrow than I was today. So what God does, he's in this constant process of refining you to make you new. He doesn't want you to stay in maintenance mode. He doesn't want you to stay in the same. He wants you to become everything that he's called you to become. And that's a constant process of becoming a new creation. Here's a great scripture to back that up. John 15, 2. This is a powerful word right here. John 15, 2 says, Any branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that, he, that, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here's the understanding. If any of you think that you're doing good right now and you're being fruitful, I got news for you. Get ready for the cutting. Because it's easy to think when I'm messing it up, God's going to cut. That's, we live in that world too many times. Man, I'm such a screw up. I keep messing it up all the time. God's just going to take me away and throw. No, that's not the case. When you're born again, you are fully in Christ and you begin the process of bearing fruit. So guess what the Lord does? If you're being fruitful and you're starting to grow by being here, I got news for you. You're about to be pruned. <laughs> you got to catch this. This is, this is really an awesome understanding. Why? 
if any of you ever garden, to be pruned means to remove the useless shoots in your life. So God, as he grows you, he says, that thing's useless. You got to cut that out or I'm going to cut it out. It's the saying, don't hold on to anything too tightly so God doesn't have to pry it out of your hands. And so what God does is as he matures you, the things that you once valued or thought were valuable, God will remove out of your life to make, that, to make you even more valuable. It's that God will produce more fruit. It's the understanding of a crepe myrtle that are getting, should, all your crepe myrtles should be being pruned right now. Cutting a crepe myrtle all the way down to the stubs or the, the bare bone branches in turn in the springtime will cause it to what? Really bloom incredible. Same with rose bushes. It's the understanding that God refines you and prunes you. But we live in a society where no one wants to be cut and pruned. We want to feel good all the time. Binge out on Netflix. You know, everything that feels good for us. It's got to be constant. Our day ends and we're, on t we're watching TV all the time. We're checked out. We're not engaged. We're not present. We're always focused on self-gratification. And what God's saying is, let me prune you and let me cut the things out of your life to make you more like me. We live in a time where it's time to be more like Jesus. That's what I'm trying to say to you. I love you all so much. It is time for us to be more like Jesus. Let the pruning process begin. Just take it. There's no self-preservation in the kingdom. I'm saying this as loving as I can. There is no self-preservation in the kingdom. And the only way that we could be pruned is to step in the light first with the Lord, then step into the light with, with someone else and be measured. I'm telling you, real pruning comes in the context of real family. That's why God designed a family. Just ask Fabian about measuring his kids and then ask his kids about being measured by their dad. Fabian is a measure and he does it well and he loves well because he cares about his kids. And he sets, he's a firm father and leader. He's an elder in this church. And he builds, class, he restores classic cars. And he's constantly in the process of tearing down and rebuilding. Fruit production is expected. To be pruned means to be cleansed. It means to be, it means this. Let me help you understand pruning. There's something in your life that's not healthy. I want to remove that thing. I want to cleanse it out of you. And then I want to wash you in the, blood, in the blood of Jesus so that it can fully be expiated. You know what the word expiate means? It means to, be, to have complete atonement. It means to be completely cleansed of that thing. So now you don't live in regrets because he just cut it out of your life, but he washed you and cleansed you of it. We're the ones that wants to hang on to our selfish things. We're the ones that allow our flesh to continue to rise up. That's where premarital sex and flesh and porn and all that stuff's coming in. So God comes in to cut it out and then he covers you in the blood so you don't walk in shame because there's no regret. But you got to let it get cut out of your life. Yeah. Woo! And then you get in a healthy place where you can bring it into the light. And then you understand it's about more fruit. Everybody say more fruit. So God, the purpose of it all is to get you more fruitful. How many of you'd like to be more fruitful? I know I would. So I'll just give you these few last ones and then we'll pray. Everything has to be done in love, even measuring and correcting. Everything. 1 Peter 4.8, I, I quote this scripture a lot. Love covers a multitude of sins. But it comes because I had fervent love for you. So we have to learn to have fervent love for one another. 
Some of you don't really like other people. Some of you don't have real compassion for other people. Some of you are such high introverts, you never want to be around other people. Some people, it's hard to even come to church because there's a crowd here. I get it. But in the kingdom, there's a different way. And it's not based on personality, and it's not based on what you like and don't like. Because the Bible says that we're to be unified and have fervent love. And if I really have fervent love for you, then out of that love, I will cover or conceal or remove or protect the process that God has you in. It doesn't mean I make atonement for your sins. Jesus already made atonement. But what it does mean is when somebody comes to me and confesses how bad they bought, they've just blew things up, what I do is I bring them to the cross, we bring forgiveness, the blood of Jesus, and then I cover it in process depending on what the situation is. Because there's still the understanding of when we do something wrong, we receive for the wrong which we've done. God's no respecter of persons. There's still consequences, but you can walk in forgiveness and mercy and not die. And you just take ownership. That's what happened with David on multiple occasions. David numbered the people. The consequence was 70,000 people were killed. David messed up with Bathsheba. The consequence was the death of his firstborn son. It's in the Bible. Now, I'm not believing that for any of us, and I believe we live now in a time of mercy and grace and compassion, but you still have to understand, if you rob a bank, you're going to prison. If you kill somebody, you're going to prison. If you steal, you're going to get arrested. There's all kinds of consequences for the situation, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't vindicate you and wash you and cleanse you and forgive you. You just have to say, I screwed up. I'll take the punishment. To To cover means to forgive. It means to hinder the knowledge of a thing. Meaning it got covered under the blood. That's in my past. Why are you reminding God about it? And why are you reminding yourself about it? And in marriage, we should be able to forgive and move forward and not hold grudges of what happened 10 years ago. And I know many couples where somebody's had an affair and that it's been confessed and they made it. And now it has to be covered in the blood and left in the past. Trust has to be rebuilt. Innocence has to be restored, but it can be covered under the blood and moved away into your past, never to be remembered again. That's what I believe. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So check this out. We have to have a culture and relationships where we can confess our sins to one another. And that doesn't mean we're walking around telling everybody how much we screwed up and what our problems are. What it means is you find people you can love and trust that have a a spiritual mothering or fathering heart or peers that you know are living healthy and right and will correct you, but to build you up, not tear you down. This This is where judgment in God's house really starts is that we have a safe place to come and say, man, I bombed it. I did this, 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 and this. And so confessing your sins to one another that you may be healed does two things. Number one, it brings you into the light. It brings it into the light. Number two, it enables you then now to enter the process of healing. So if you're hiding something in your life, God can't deal with it. I mean, he'll deal with you, but I'm telling you that God wants us to walk in unity and fellowship with one another. He designed it to where you you can't just get it from him. I'm telling you, he has a body that has a purpose. I'll show it to you. It's the scripture in 1 John 1, 7. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another 
and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. I want you to notice the pattern. It's this understanding that God says, bring it into the light. Don't allow darkness and deception to come into your heart and into your life. And find somebody to talk to. Find somebody that can measure you. And we're raising up leaders, and many more leaders will come over the time, and I want it to be all of you. Desiring leadership in the kingdom of God is biblical and it's spiritual. The Bible says he who desires the work of an overseer desires a good thing. And so what I want you to see is that the blood of Jesus cleansing us and unity go hand in hand with one another. And that comes from walking in the light. And that's why the scripture confessing your sins to one another that you may be healed is so powerful. And I'm going to leave you with this last scripture. One of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. It's been, a, it's been a theme of mine in this last season, and it'll be a theme of mine for the rest of my life. And it's the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 or 15. 14. So in all of Paul's correction, in all of the correction that happens even in the scriptures, Paul says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but I'm writing them as children, as my own family, to warn you. To warn means to be corrected. It means to be directed. It means to be loved and respected. It means that I care enough about you that I'm not always telling you about the pitfalls, but I'm guiding you and directing you in a way that you won't fall into the pit. And I don't want you to walk in shame. Shame is the number one thing that holds us back. Shame of what people will think about us or if they really knew. And I just want to say to you guys, let's change that. Yeah. It's going to take a, all of us to do it together. You can't rely on just 5, 10, 15 leaders. It's a culture of transparency and love and trust. And it's a culture of spiritual parenting. How is this church going to be sustained as it grows over the course of time? And when there's 1,000, 2,000 people or whatever God is, wants for us down the line, how's this culture going to be sustained? spiritual fathering. Because he goes on to say in the next verse, you have 10,000 instructors, but not many fathers. What God wants is spiritual parents. And he wants spiritual parents that can break off shame, that can accurately measure, cut, or warn, and in turn cause people to bloom and blossom in their lives. And then we beget each other through the good news of the gospel. To beget means we become one, we become family. And verse 16 says, Therefore, imitate me. Where are the people in the kingdom that can be imitated? Can your life be imitated? And if it can't, then let's get you to the place where it can, and let's enjoy the ride and the process. No one wants to live under the microscope all the time. I'm not always measuring you and judging you. That's, I, that would be a terrible marriage. But it's in the context of refining struggles, challenges, or wise counsel. The Bible has a lot to say about wise counsel. In direction, in guidance, we all need it in our life. And so we always are positioned in a place where we can help somebody else come into the light. Last week, Suji came back to church for the first time in a long time. She had a powerful dream. She got born again here a long time ago. And she came up to the front, and she said, I knew I was supposed to be here today. I had this dream. 
And I said, listen, God wants, God wants to deal with you on some things you've been harboring, things from your past, and, it's, and he says it's time to forgive. And she remembered a situation that she'd never forgiven her. She, she remembered something that happened to her, and I'm not going to say what it is, but the point is, is right here at the altar last week, she forgave and wept and cried. She brought it into the light. She had real godly sorrow. And you know what? It's that something broke inside of her and freedom came and it happened on one Sunday morning just like this last week. Now she's got to get into process with family and friends and mamas and papas because it takes a family in order for us to go where God's called us to go. But she started the process. And the stories of how many people come here on a, any given time, I'll tell you, you all are in so many different places. We're all in unique different places. And I know so many of you. Some of you are way more spiritual than others. Some of you are flamed on more than others. Some of you are in process. Some of you just started. Some of you are at this for 20 years. But it doesn't really matter. What, what you have to understand is that right where you're at right now, God wants to meet you. And the real sacrifices that move God are a contrite heart, meaning I recognize and realize, wow, I have bombed it. But now you don't live in that place. I've, just, I've said this to you before. Some of you have screwed up so bad, you're living in a constant world of repentance. And here's what I mean by that. You're still saying sorry for what you did 10 years ago or last week. And it's sorry, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God. And if you don't have an accurate understanding of what God does with your sin when you confess it, and yeah, there may be consequences. Like, for example, if you did a lot of drugs in your life, I meet people a lot of, all the time that have done a lot of drugs, and their body has aged because of the drugs that they've done. But God can fully renew their mind, but there was still a consequence for the drugs. Lost teeth, wrinkled skin, if you smoked your whole life, there's all kinds of issues and problems and challenges that can come as a result of that. But the greater thing is that God renews your mind and heals your heart and transforms you no matter what has happened to you physically. So now you don't live in regret for what you did to your life. Now you realize, hey, I bombed it for 20, 30, 40 years with addiction or whatever it was, but now God has renewed my mind and we have a culture where people are looking at the heart, not the outward man. That's the kind of culture that we build that I don't care about your tattoos. I don't care if you have Satan tattooed all over your neck and one of the biker guys gets born again. The tattoo is covered in the blood of Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, what God cares about is the heart, not our hair, not our skin, not the clothes we wear. And God in his kindness and mercy transforms us from the inside out. Inside out. Let's all stand.